being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have a song of an amazing love. We've been reminded by Charles Wesley and from Psalm 103 that your love and your mercy and your grace superabound toward those whom you have loved. And as we come to your word this morning, we come with grateful hearts, amazed hearts. But we come with hearts that remain disordered and dull and very much in need of the enlivening and illuminating work of your spirit. So Lord Jesus, show your faithfulness yet again. Grant your spirit as we consider this remarkable passage and and as we seek by your grace to apply it to our own lives, would you come and do this work which you alone can do, Lord Jesus, we ask. We pray in your name. Amen. It's good to be with you again this week. You're making your way through this letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Uh, and we looked last week at these last verses, the last handful of verses of chapter 1 and come uh, to this second chapter um, and I'll just remind you that chapter and verse divisions uh, are not inspired. Um, you, um, you come to the end of chapter 1 and you've sort of finished your daily Bible reading uh, and then you pick up the next day and you think that Paul's line of reasoning or something has maybe changed, but it hasn't. There's, there's a, a continuity to this text. There's a flow and there's a movement uh, to this text, which I hope we'll see um, as we look at it. Some of you uh, may remember, and I'm dating myself in mentioning this, but some of you uh, will remember the book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I read that book uh, right after I became a Christian. I, I don't know why, and I don't remember anything in it except the importance of remembering people's names, knowing people's names. That's the one thing that stuck with me from the book. If you, if you call someone by name, you're, you're reminding that person of his or her identity. I love to do that in restaurants. You, you see the name tag, use the name tag. You're affirming the humanity of a person when you call that person by name. That's the only thing I remember from the book. But since then, it has occurred to me through the years uh, that the Apostle Paul didn't read that book. Um, because passages like this are not designed to win friends. 
They may influence people in varieties of ways, but they're not designed to win friends. This, this characterizing of human beings in their condition apart from Christ is not flattering. It's not flattering at all. These first three verses are hard to swallow. So why does Paul go here after those first 13 verses, those, those Everests or those Alps that we talked about last week that lead then to this, this very tender pastoral prayer of verses 14 to 18? Uh, and then the reminder of how deeply loved we are, that we are God's inheritance, his very own possession. And then those last few verses, which are a, a kind of an expansive emphasis on the power that has raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that elevated him to the right hand of the Father, where he has ascended and now rules and reigns in all power and all glory, that same power is directed toward these Ephesians. It is for them. It is to them. Uh, it is focused upon them. Why then does Paul, from that, that magnificent exposition of this power that has raised Jesus from the dead, why does he go to these first three verses? This sort of bad news thing. Well, it seems to me that, that it's a reminder. Uh, he, he wants these Ephesians to remember who they were. It's a reminder of who they were. And let me give you a kind of a punchline before we even get to the text. You measure a problem by what it takes to fix it. You measure a problem by what is required to overcome it, to reverse it, to change it. What was your problem in your natural state? How serious is your problem when you are apart from Christ? So serious that it requires the God of heaven and earth, the creator of everything that exists. It requires the second person of the Godhead to come into the world to take to himself a nature exactly like yours, to suffer a lifetime of temptation without succumbing, then to be impaled upon a cross as a substitute for your sin, but then to be raised from death to life, never to die again. Your condition, apart from Christ, is so serious that only the God of all creation can fix it. Only the God of creation can do it. You can't. No amount of pedaling faster, no amount of trying harder, no amount of self-righteousness, None of that can fix it. He can and he did. You need what he accomplished. You need a resurrection. If you're not a believer today, if you've not crossed that threshold into this, into this world of, of forgiveness and life and hope, that's what you need. You need a resurrection. If you are a believer today, and I trust that everybody in this room is, that's what you needed. You needed a resurrection. Why? 
because you were dead. That's what Paul says here in verse 1. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Sin brings death. It always does. That's what Paul's telling us here. Again, it's not polite. It's not designed to win friends. But it's an accurate articulation of the human condition. Dead in trespass and sin. What's a trespass? You know what a trespass is. When you see a sign that says no trespassing, you understand that there's a line that is not to be crossed. And if you cross that line, you face the consequences. If you violate the prohibition, there is a price to be paid. I think I mentioned this last week. I've been in ministry for almost 45 years. And across 45 years, you can imagine that I've done uh, quite a lot of funerals. And it's always interesting at fairly large gatherings when we get to the Lord's Prayer, the Episcopalians and the Roman Catholics identify themselves because they're trespassers, right? And I always leave just a little bit more room for those trespassers. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, we Presbyterians are debtors except here, <laughs> where you are trespassers, right? But you know what the deal is. If you trespass, you incur a debt. If you're a debtor, you've incurred that debt, a debt that needs to be settled because you've trespassed, because you've crossed a line, because you've violated a law. By doing things you ought not to have done, and by failing to do, those things which you ought to have done. Trespasses. Trespasses are those acts of law-breaking that incur a debt. And sins, what are sins? Sins actually, or sin is actually the bigger, more comprehensive term. As our catechism, our catechism puts it, a sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any offense against God, whether in thought or word or deed. It includes things like envy. These are internal things. It includes things like envy and jealousy and lust and covetousness and harboring resentment and, and refusing forgiveness to one who has wronged you. Sin's a three-letter word. It's a little word, but it's a very, very big idea. And where does sin lead? Where does sin always lead? It always leads to death. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much at all to end up in this condition of death. Remember, folks, it took one violation of the law one act of covetousness, one premeditated transgression to plunge the whole of the human race into a condition of misery and brokenness and disorder and deep, deep sadness. Isn't, isn't the record, the history of humankind 
a record of misery and brokenness and disorder and deep, deep sadness? And isn't there something deep in your bones that tells you it's not supposed to be this way? It's supposed to be other than the way it is? And doesn't that raise a question in your minds? Why is it the way it is? And the Bible's very simple answer is sin and transgression. And it leads to these things. It produces these things. It leads to death. As I mentioned, I've done a fair number of funerals. I've done them for children. I've done them for young adults. I've done them for young fathers. I've done them for young mothers. I've done them for senior citizens. It is never pleasant. And at every graveside, there is one thing that I wish I could do. I wish I could speak a word, just a word, that would bring this loved one back to life. And I can't do it. I'm powerless to do it. Sin doesn't make people sick. Sin kills. It brings death. But notice there's something very striking about this passage. Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked. This, this death, this spiritual death, that Paul is describing doesn't leave people inanimate. People are very, very much alive as they are dead in their transgressions and sins. I haven't seen this series. I don't know if it's network television or Netflix or Hulu or where you find it, but there is this series called Walking Dead, right? Walking Dead. This death is a very, very active death. The other thing about it is people in this condition actually think that they're free. They think they're independent. They think they're captains of their own destinies, but they are actually followers. Paul says it twice. They are followers of the course of the world. They've been, they've been sucked into the world's vortex, into its idolatry, its unbelief, into its misery. They're not free. They're caught in the vortex of the world, and they're the followers of the prince of the power of the air. Don't ever forget, you live in a two-aspect universe. There's the seen and the unseen, and on the other side of the veil that separates the seen from the unseen, there is an intense warfare that is being conducted. And there's a good guy, and there's a bad guy. And people who are sucked into the vortex of the world, also are in bondage to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then there's this one other thing, and I love this. I mentioned this last week. Notice that Paul includes himself. He includes himself. Self. He begins by pointing his finger, if you will, at the Ephesians, but by verse 3, he's included himself, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul's a pastor, he's a theologian, he's a church planter, he's an apologist, and he's a sinner, and he knew it. I love your pastor, you know I do. And one thing I love about your pastor is that he's just like the Apostle Paul. 
He knows that he needs the gospel that week by week he tells you that you need. And you want a pastor like that. You don't want a pastor who is always and only saying you. You want a pastor who says we. This was our condition. What does Paul want people to remember? He wants them to remember that they weren't free. They weren't alive. They were imprisoned in, in sin and death. They were in bondage and held captive to the world and to the devil who roams around seeking whom he may devour. And what's the evidence of this? What's the evidence of this death? They reeked of the passions of the flesh. And what are those passions? Those passions are, some of them, listed in chapters 4 and 5. There are things like hard-heartedness and callousness and greed and sensuality and impurity and bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice and filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. That's the evidence of spiritual death. And Paul's reminding that these folks that they reeked of this. Living death, walking dead. One of my favorite films, all-time favorite films, is the 1979 version of Dracula. Of all things. It stars Frank Langella and Laurence Olivier. And in the film... Olivier's character, Abram van Helsing, is drawn, summoned to his daughter Mina's side because she's desperately ill. And what van Helsing learns is that her life has been taken, infected, poisoned by the vampire Count Dracula. He needs her blood, and the result is that she dies, only she isn't really dead. She is Nosferatu. She is undead, dead, but undead. And this becomes clear to Van Helsing when he tries to find her in the underworld and encounters his undead daughter. And in a scene that is terrifying and haunting, Mina, with fire-red eyes and chalk-white colorless skin and blood-red lips, attacks her father, crying out, Papa! Papa, dead, but not dead, undead. And Van Helsing knows that what is necessary for her to be freed from her condition is a stake through the heart. That will free her. And that's what you need. That's what you need. You need something so radical that it frees you from that bondage. Only in this case, as you know, the stake didn't go through your heart. The stake went through the heart of Jesus, and it wasn't a stake. It was a Roman spear, and the stake was nails that impaled him upon that cross, the nails of crucifixion. That's what you needed. To be set free, you needed a death, but you need more than a death. You need a resurrection. To be free, you need to be brought from death to life, and that is what has happened to you. Nothing less 
than a resurrection from the dead could save you. You see it in verse 4. You have this description, and then you have this great, this great response from Paul. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him, raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Right? You see why Paul wants to remind them of who they were? Because he wants them to see who they are now. And you see the connection now that there is between verses 4 and following and those verses at the end of chapter 1. You see that Paul is saying what is true of Jesus, the power that raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority, what is true of Jesus is true of you, raised to life from death seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning with Jesus, alive from the dead. What's your environment? What's your, your realm, if you, what's your address, if you will? I know it's probably someplace in Jacksonville, but you have another address, right? You are in Jesus Christ, that is who you are by virtue of this great power that has raised you from this condition to death. We as Christians tend to describe our relationship with Christ as having Christ in us. We, we ask Christ to come into our lives, to take up residence in us, and that's biblical language. Galatians 2.20 it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But far more frequently, far more frequently, over 150 times in fact, our identity, the way the New Testament describes our relationship to Christ, is that we are in him. We are in Christ Jesus. We are united to him. We are in the beloved. That's our identity. That's our environment. That's our address because of this great power that God has directed toward us, toward you. And why? And how? Well, it's because of love and mercy and grace. I don't know who picked the hymns this week. Um, but Charles Wesley included it in that third verse, right? All three of those words are in that third verse. Love, mercy, and grace. Psalm 103. Love, mercy, and grace. God, superabounding in mercy. And what is mercy? It's compassion. That's how the word that's here is translated in Matthew 9:36. When Jesus saw the crowds, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he felt compassion for them. Mark 1, verse 41, it's translated pity. When Jesus saw the leper, the leper came to him and cried out to him, pled with him to be healed. Jesus felt pity for him and healed him. One commentator says about that passage in Mark, when Jesus saw the leper, his whole inner being began to move and burn, right? Real, 
real pity affects you in the gut. Right? I remember years ago, decades ago, seeing these commercials for aid to starving children in Ethiopia. It's been decades, but I still remember those ads. Children with weepy eyes, with distended bellies, gaunt and, and hollow faces. It's mercy that you feel. It's pity that you feel. Or think of the news releases that we keep getting from the Ukraine, the, the flood of refugees, the death, the destitution that innocent people are experiencing. What do you feel? You feel pity. And that's the heart of God, mercy, compassion. B.B. Warfield, in an article entitled the, entitled the Emotional Life of Our Lord, argues that the most often mentioned emotion seen in the Gospels in Jesus is compassion. He writes this, the emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. The term employed to express it was unknown to the Greek classics. Isn't that fascinating? The Greek gods were not characterized by compassion. The word first comes to be used, Warfield says, in the synoptic gospels, in this sense of pity and compassion. And then he says, the divine mercy has been defined as that essential perfection in God whereby he pities and relieves the miseries of his creatures. And notice this, notice, notice where mercy originates. Notice where compassion originates. It originates in the love of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. The soil out of which mercy grows, the, the ground out of which it emerges, is love. You pity starving children. You pity the Ukrainians, but, but do you love them? Do you love them? When our oldest daughter was 11 years old, she had a sinus surgery. She needed to have one of her sinuses opened up a bit so that all that stuff up there could drain out of that sinus. And after the surgery in the recovery room, as she came out from under the anesthesia, she was afraid. She was crying. She was disoriented. She didn't know where she was. Her face was stuffed with packing to stanch the bleeding. She had tubes in her arms. What did I feel? I felt pity. But my heart was breaking. Why was my heart breaking? Because I loved my daughter, and I still love my daughter. And how long have I loved my daughter? I will never forget. I guess you should never say never as you start getting older. I will, I will never forget the night sitting in our bed when Barb took my hand and put it on her tummy and I felt my daughter move for the first time. This little flick in the palm of my hand. I loved her then and I loved her even before I felt her for the first time. How long have you been loved by God? He's told you, Paul has told you, you have been loved 
from before the foundation of the world, from all eternity, you have been loved. And what does he feel? What is his heart when he sees you in your misery, when he sees you in your distress, in your desperate and helpless condition? His heart knows compassion. His whole inner being moves and burns to relieve you of your distress. That is mercy. And God is rich in it, superabounding in it. But here's the thing. If compassion is empty, if compassion doesn't act, if compassion doesn't do something, it's meaningless. But God did something. He saved you. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is mercy rooted in love acting in behalf of the one in distress. Let me say it again. Grace is mercy rooted in infinite love acting to relieve the distress of the one who is loved. By grace you have been saved. Grace is the God of heaven and earth who has loved you with an everlasting love, who sees you in your distress, doing what he alone could do, giving you his son to deliver you from sin's terrible consequences, both legal and penal, existential and experiential. Grace is mercy in action. I love this quotation from a sermon preached by Gerhardus Voss, on Jeremiah 31.3, yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is what Voss says. In the unlimitable round of his timeless existence, we have never been absent from nor uncared for by him. The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. The best proof that Christ loves you lies in that he never began to love you. He has loved you from all eternity. And it is that love that gives rise to his mercy that is made manifest in his grace which saves. And do you know what? The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Why does he do this? Why does he love us? Why does he show us this mercy by rescuing us from sin and death in the wonder of the cross and the grave and the resurrection and the ascension? Verse 7. So that in the, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Folks, can you imagine for all eternity bathing in without mitigation or interruption 
bathing in the infinite love of the triune God, being gathered up into the love that the Father has for the Son, that the Son has for the Father, that the Father and the Son have for the Spirit, that the Spirit has for the Father and the Son. Can you imagine being gathered up into that love? Having all your doubts removed, having all your fears assuaged, having all your brokenness healed, Nothing, nothing but the pure delight of loving and being loved. That is who you are. That is where you're headed. And this table that is before you is designed to do many things, but one of them is to remind you who you are, who you were, and where you're headed in the direction of a greater feast where you will sit at table with this one who has loved you with this everlasting love and rather than you serving him, he, he, will serve you. Thanks be to God for this remarkable grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I confess to you my heart grows dull. My heart grows dull and even disinterested. It is a shameful thing. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive us? I don't think I'm the only one in the room of whom that's true. Would you renew us and refresh us by your spirit by reminding us who we were, but then reassuring us of who we are and setting before us where it is that we are headed in the direction of this eternal bathing in this infinite love. Lord, would you do that, we ask, and we will praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.